Well, a number of years ago, uh, when we were on holidays, we ended up in Canberra for a few days. Uh, this is one of those trips where we decided to take in some of the, I guess, bigger spots there. And so I found myself for the first time at the Australian War Memorial, the War Museum. And uh, I really enjoyed it. There was you know, no end of things to see there. And there were a handful of things that really grabbed uh, my attention. Uh, I thought that some of the uh, black and white wartime photography was just excellent. Uh, I like the actual, uh, the, well, the large exhibit with the actual warplanes. Uh, and I also really like the smaller things that were there that brought out the character of the soldiers. And I remember this little makeshift violin or ukulele that one of them had made while they were um, serving overseas. And, and then, of course, there were the uh, confronting bits, like the POW section and the honor roll, you know, with all the poppies marking the names of those who gave their lives in service. But you want to know something else that really, really stood out for me? It was the section where they showed the end of World War II, with all the photos and newspapers and celebrations in Australia and elsewhere when the peace was declared. You know, crowds of people just full of rejoicing and excitement and relief. Uh, people were dancing, shouting, uh, waving their hands in the air. I remember this one picture, it just stands out in my head, this picture of these young women, probably in their 20s, and they were just so full of life and joy because of the news that they had heard. Uh, the end of the war was just something you could not just brush off. Uh, there was no way to not join in with the celebrations. And most of us here have seen these sorts of pictures, haven't we? Especially with the 70th anniversary not too long ago. Uh, we have, of course, the famous Dancing Man here in Sydney. Many of us know this picture. And then there's, uh, I really like this one, there's the famous uh, kissing picture with the, you know, the naval soldier and, and the nurse. I mean, this kind of news causes you to act like that, to just celebrate. And so when I saw these pictures, these sorts of pictures at the museum, there's no way I could miss the effect that the end of the war had on these people. See, they had received amazing and glorious and powerful news. It meant that not only had their world changed, but this was life-changing for them as well. And you know, that's what Mark says here right at the beginning of our passage today. Let's look at what verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we use the word gospel an awful lot here in this church and in our services, and that's a fantastic thing. Let's keep doing that. But let's not forget that gospel is a very important word. It pretty much means good news, but good news in an awesome way. It was used in ancient times when something world-changing had happened, like the birth of a new emperor, or when news reached home that their army was victorious on the battlefield. Mark tells us straight up what he's on about. This book of the Bible is something unique. It's not a letter, and it's not just history or theology, though those things are in there, of course, but it's a gospel. It's earth-shattering news, and it's news about someone in particular, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we see there on the screen. So my aim for us today is actually very simple to introduce our series on Mark's Gospel and to introduce this great news. As we open up this part of the Bible, who do we see that this Jesus is? 
And why would news about him be world-changing and life-altering? We're going to look at four scenes or four sections from today's passage. And from each one, we're going to put together a bit of a picture of the Jesus who's introduced to us at the beginning here of Mark's Gospel. The first section is a collection of quotes from the Old Testament. Look with me, please, at verses 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Right away, Mark helps us to see that this great news is something that had been planned. He quotes from two Old Testament prophets from Malachi and Isaiah. They had promised that a messenger would appear saying that God was on his way. See, the people of this time, they were looking forward to someone. They were looking forward to a great day of the Lord when God himself would deliver them and restore them to glory. They were looking forward to when God would come and make everything right. And so this tells us something critically important about Jesus. He is the promised one. His coming is the coming of God that the people were looking forward to. He is the one that people have to get ready for because their king will soon be in their midst. See, the good news of Jesus, it's not just a knee-jerk reaction to the problem of sin in our world. He's not an afterthought. God is not a haphazard God who is making it up as he goes along. The work of Jesus is the unfolding of his deliberate plans as promised in detail by his prophets long before. Jesus came to do something very specific at exactly the right time. And this means a couple of things for us. I can't help but think back to a conversation that I had with someone once, and they said something to me like this. Look, you know, I'm happy to believe in Jesus. I can accept that he came to earth and that he did some good things, but you know, I just can't believe in all that Old Testament stuff. I was just pushing it a bit too far. You might have heard similar things. Now, there's a lot we could say in response to that. But through Mark here, we see that statements like that just don't work. Part of understanding the gospel is looking back at the Old Testament and seeing it as fulfilled in Jesus. We can look at God's promises there and we can see them in all their richness. And not as if over half the Bible now just needs to be chucked out because Jesus has come. That's why here at this church we preach on a big section of the Old Testament every single year. And we only have to listen to Jesus himself on this. In Luke 12, uh, not 12, sorry, in Luke 24, 27, he says, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So in a sense, all of the Bible points to Jesus. And here we see him, not as some cobbled together solution to the mess of the world, but as God's detailed and exact answer. His coming is nothing less than the great coming of God that everyone was waiting for. And you know, this also means that we have an answer for the times when we wonder if God is there and if, if, and if he's doing anything. 
The God who can promise and fulfill a plan like this is not an abstract and silent God. Even when we're tempted to think that God has turned his back, we can look here and we can see how he works. He had always known that he would deliver and save. And he comes through with what he says that he will do. Our God is trustworthy. So in this first scene, we see the Old Testament looking forward to Jesus. His coming is the unfolding of God's amazing plan. He is the Lord that they were expecting. And he is bound up with all the richness of God's promises. And then as we come to the second scene, the story of John the Baptist, we see those Old Testament quotes being fulfilled in detail. Uh, Mark immediately connects that voice in the desert with John and his ministry. So look with me please at verse 4. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is that promised messenger. And we see that in how he looks and what he does. Uh, Verse 6 tells us, Uh, that he wears hairy animal clothing and he eats a diet that most of us just wouldn't you normally go for. But if we again look back at the Old Testament promises and we turn to Malachi, it starts to make a bit more sense. It's not a real picture of John the Baptist, by the way. It says there, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Not only will there be a messenger before God comes, but that person will be a new Elijah figure. Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets, and if we read about him, well, we see that John is dressed an awful lot like him. Same stylist, I guess. But this helps us to understand what he does as well. See, part of that Elijah figure's role is to help people to turn back to God in faithfulness. So John here, we see him preaching about sins and repentance, and the people respond. They can see through John and through their understanding of the scriptures and the prophets that God's great person is coming, and they want to be ready. So they come to him confessing their sins and to be baptized. What these people are doing is getting ready to meet a holy God just like their ancestors did in the desert generations before. But you know, as this is happening, John himself was also very sure to point to someone greater. He wants the people to be clear on on the fact that he is not the end of what God is doing. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me, please. (coughs) Excuse me. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When Oprah Winfrey first visited Australia in 2010, not sure if you know this, but the Australian public paid for her visit at a cost of $3 million. Tourism Australia footed the bill because of what they call the Oprah Effect. And there's a large published document which explains this in way too much detail. Uh, But apparently she is such a popular figure, she has 70 million viewers around the globe every single week. She is so popular that she boosts tourism wherever she goes. And then recently, after they announced her return to Australia this year, cheapest tickets to see her, 
sold out in just hours. And the tickets that are left are the VIP complete package tickets at $2,500 a pop. So no matter how you slice it, whether or not you're a fan, no one can argue that Oprah attracts many, many people. And so did John the Baptist. Now, I won't push it as far as to say he was a biblical Oprah. That's not what I'm getting at. But, but in one sense, we can say he was almost like a biblical celebrity of the time. Uh, verse 5 tells us that people from all over the country, all over the city, they flocked to see him. Now, yes, people were responding to God through his ministry, and I don't want to downplay that. But we have to see at the same time that John was an attraction as well. And yet, despite this amazing popularity for the time, John pretty much says, you know, look, don't look at me. You know, look to the coming one. He is most holy and powerful. I'm not even fit to help him with his footwear. And John was actually really making a big point in that statement. The undoing of a sandal, handling somebody's dirty feet, that was a job for the lowest of the low. Not only a slave, but a Gentile slave. So compared to the one who's coming, John is saying, I'm nothing. I baptize with water, that's a symbol. He is bringing the Spirit of God. See, there are lots of ideas about Jesus out there in our world. But John the Baptist was sure of who he is. The absolutely most powerful, the promised one of God, the bringer of the Spirit. And John's clothing, his actions and his words all testified to Jesus in this amazing way. But if that testimony about him isn't enough, well, how about God the Father himself? This brings us to our third scene. Uh, we've heard from the promises in the Old Testament, and then we've heard from John the Baptist, and now God the Father. Having said that the powerful one is coming, Mark moves to the baptism of Jesus. Look with me, please, verse 9. At that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, on one level, this simple sentence also tells us something important about Jesus. Yes, he is the promised, powerful Lord that they have been waiting for, but he's also a man. Notice that he didn't just magically appear on the scene. He came from a place called Nazareth. And if we read more widely across Scripture, we learn this is the place where he grew up. And so Jesus comes and he does what everyone else is doing. He is baptized by John. He is among the people. But we also need to be very clear on something else as we read this. The baptism of Jesus wasn't the same as for the others. It couldn't have been a symbol of Jesus confessing his personal sins because he didn't have any. Now, Mark doesn't actually give us a reason for the baptism here, but there are a number of possibilities. Uh, some suggest that this was Jesus completely identifying with humanity, you know, with the people he would represent on the cross. Uh, it may have been him declaring his obedience to God's plan and his willingness to stand in our place for our sins. Uh, some people focus in on the Spirit here, and they see this as Jesus being enabled and equipped for ministry, and in a sense, his anointing with the Spirit as God's King. And there's other views out there as well. But either way, this is a declaration that something amazing is going to happen. When each of my children were baptized, each of those baptisms were very different. Um, at Anouk's baptism... 
Well, she was just very cute and sweet. No other way to say it. It was, it was very nice. Uh, William's baptism was a little bit more interesting because he actually had a verbal response. He said, more water, please, much to the excitement and laughter of the congregation. And then Evelyn was baptized here in this church a couple of weeks ago. And again, thank you, Matt, uh, because Evelyn just squirmed and wriggled the whole time, kept calling out, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, because she wanted to get down. Okay, colorful minister's kids is all I can say. You know, but despite the variety of these baptisms, none of them were like the baptism of Jesus. You know, there was, has not been any other baptism like the baptism of Jesus because here we see the heavens opened, we see the Holy Spirit coming down and into him, as it says more literally here, and a voice from heaven saying as we read in verse 11, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here we see that the baptism of Jesus is also a supernatural event where he is shown to be the Son of God. And this tells us a couple of things. Not only is he in a loving relationship with the Father, but as his Son in this way, he fully represents the Father. Jesus acts and speaks for him. That's what we're seeing as Mark's gospel unfolds. It's like what we read in John 5:36. Jesus says, For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. Or we could think about it in a slightly different way, like in John 14:9, where Jesus tells Philip, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you were sitting here today, and you are seeking God, you don't have to look any further than Jesus himself. If you want to know what God is like, the way God acts, his gracious character, his heart to save, Mark's gospel will reveal him perfectly in the Son of God. And you know as well, we live in a world where people are very quick to call God to account. You know, when people say things like, well, you know, I just refuse to believe, I can't believe in a God who allow such and such, you fill in the blank. Well, what I say to that is, well, why not fully meet this God in Jesus and then see what you think of him? The baptism of Jesus shows him as both fully God and fully man. And specifically from God the Father himself, we hear that Jesus is his son who is in a loving relationship with him. This brings us to our last scene that we'll briefly explore today. Having heard from the Old Testament, those promises, and from John the Baptist, now from God the Father and Jesus' baptism, we come to the temptation of Jesus. Uh, we read in verse 12 that the Spirit who just came into him at his baptism right away sends him out into the desert. Have a look at verse 13, please. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. It's interesting, isn't it, how the Spirit works here? Uh, having the Spirit come upon Jesus didn't mean that now he just entered some sort of you know, tranquility or some sort of enlightenment and bliss, but instead he was sent right away out into a time of struggling and, and testing. Now, we don't get a whole lot of detail in Mark's Gospel. It's really only a couple of lines here. But, but a couple of the other Gospels tell us that this 
was a time when Satan really tried to take Jesus down. Jesus was very hungry. Again, showing him as a man. Satan tempted him to make food. You don't just use your power for your own gain. Uh, He tempted him to test God's love, despite what we just heard in the baptism. And he also tempted Jesus with power and glory. See here, Satan knows exactly what's at stake. He knows that Jesus is a supernatural threat, and he wants him wiped out before he causes any trouble. He wants to take the enemy down early, and especially when he seems weak. And so from this scene, we learn that the work of Jesus is actually something cosmic. Yes, Jesus was a real man who lived and died and rose at a real point in history, but behind the scenes, his great sacrificial work was a destruction of sin and the armies of darkness and an end of an era of slavery to the devil. So what Satan was really trying to do here with Jesus was to get him to switch sides. This was a test of the divine son as he starts his work and goes about his father's business. Satan was really saying to Jesus, oh, forget the father. Forget his plan. Forget all the humility and hardship and the death that you will go through to save people. Jesus, just look out for yourself and worship me and all will be all right. But as we thankfully know, Jesus didn't give in to those very real temptations, did he? We see here that Satan knows all too well what Jesus has come to do. The very son of the God of the universe is now on the move and he is about to do the most important act that we have ever seen in all time and history. Satan was very clear on who Jesus is and the magnitude of what was going to happen. Question for us is, are we? Do we see Jesus on this level? The opening of Mark's gospel shows us an amazing picture. Jesus is that promised one of the Old Testament, God coming. He is a son of God, deeply loved by the Father. He's obedient and he is set on the Father's plan, even though he knows it's going to cost him his life. And yet he's fully man as well, completely identifying with humanity. He will stand in our place and pay for our sins to bring us new and eternal life. And his work is a cosmic and supernatural event that will fix the core problem of sin in our world while tearing down the enemies of God. So it's no wonder that Mark writes a gospel. It's no wonder that this is a sort of news that leads to dancing in the streets because the work of Jesus will lead to the greatest peace, peace with God. Friends, let me invite you to just saturate yourself in Mark's gospel over the next month. You know, let's all spend time in this part of God's word reading it over the next little while. You know, whether you already follow Jesus or you're still getting to know him, Uh, Whether you know the stories of his life very well or you have lots of questions, still let's get into Mark. And this will set us up well for other things coming up in the life of our church. Like the sermon series over the next month, uh, like the Mark drama and Christianity explored, all of them with Mark's gospel as their foundation. But let's read, aiming to get to know this Jesus. And I promise you that this is good news.
and that this is life-changing and it is something worth celebrating. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for Mark's gospel. I thank you that there is a gospel. Lord, as we encounter Jesus again, or maybe for the first time, Lord, show us very clearly, please, who he is. And Lord, help us to be struck by the magnitude of what you have done in bringing him into the world. And help us to be struck by what he has done. For us, Lord, on this side of the cross, give us eyes to see him, follow him, rejoice in him, and be people celebrating from the depths of our hearts because of what he has done for us. Guide us now. Guide us into this coming week. Guide us over the next month, Lord, and give us a hunger to read this particular gospel and to be transformed by it. We ask that you will work powerfully and graciously across the lives of each person sitting here and across this church. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.